Welcome to the Institute of Catholic Culture, a nonprofit Catholic organization dedicated to the re-evangelization of our society through educational and cultural programs offered to the public at no charge. This and other presentations, hundreds of hours of audio, are available for free on our website, www.instituteofcatholicculture.org. There you can listen to or download educational programs related to all aspects of our divine faith, and you can review our schedule of upcoming events. We hope you can join us in person. If you could please stand, we'll begin in prayer. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks and praise for the many blessings you have bestowed upon us as we draw to the end of our liturgical year and prepare for the celebration of Christ the King. May we truly have gratitude in our hearts for you are our loving God who has given us our Savior and has communicated that love to each of us through the grace given through the Holy Spirit. We ask all of this through Christ our Lord. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. May the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. And a word from our sponsor. Right? You all know who this man is standing next to me, so please welcome Father William Saunders. Well, thank you all. It's good to be with you again. I was back in July, I think it was, when I was invited to talk about just war. So it's good to be back with you, and I don't want to belabor the point, but this is such a great organization and such a good resource for all of us in our diocese. The fact that we have a vehicle for adult education is so important, especially if you think of people who grew up in the late 60s, 70s, and 80s when religious education just took a nosedive. So this is a great opportunity to evangelize people. So I encourage you to support that. Well, tonight we, or tonight, <laughs> today we talk about God our Father. Now, of course, in the Creed, that's how we begin. We believe in one God, the Father, the Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. So first of all, why do we refer to God as the Father? Some people have some problems with that these days. I was not there, but a priest friend of mine was at some liturgical conference. That immediately sends off signals, a liturgical conference. And the presenter began with, in the name of God, our Father and Mother, and our Savior, and so on. And it's like, please, you know, why do we do that? First of all, we refer to the Father because Jesus did. That's the key. Jesus, our beloved Savior, throughout the Gospels, is referring to his Father as Father. And more importantly, even, he doesn't even use the formal term. Like for us, Father in English is a very formal term. Most of us probably refer to our fathers as Dad, Daddy, Papa, something like that. And Jesus, when he uses the term Father in the Aramaic, is using the word Abba, which is really more the daddy. 
So it's not the formal. So our dear Lord refers to his father as father. Now, for the Jewish people of the Old Testament, when they used that term, that understanding, they knew it as the father being the life giver. First of all, they didn't have the biology that we have. So they didn't know about how conception took place as we do, that you have sperm, ovum, and so on. They believed the man planted the seed in the woman. So the father was always the life giver, the father who gave life. And also, the father was the protector, the guardian, the one who provided for his creation. So all of that imagery surrounds that term father. We do have to recognize, and the catechism states this, that our English term father should not in any way limit God. Our language has its limits. When we think of the love of God, and St. John remembered, remember said, God is love. How do we understand that? Well, for most of us, we're going to look at how we've received love from our parents. The love of a father is different from the love of a mom. When we think about it, that there is that different quality between the masculine versus the feminine, but that shouldn't be seen as something that is at odds or unequal in a sense, but rather something that's complementary. When we use the term father, referring to God the Father, it encompasses all that love. Now, we don't want to get into that political nonsense of God our father and God our mother. No, that's, that's ridiculous. But we do want to remember God is love. And that father term encompasses perfect love. All the aspects of perfect love that we as human beings hopefully encounter in our lifetime. Now, with that said, the idea of the father as the creator is very essential for our belief. God creates. Now, we're going to travel through primarily the first chapter of Genesis, the creation account. Hopefully, all of you are very familiar with that. Even in our Easter Vigil Mass, this is the first reading that is used, a beautiful reading. To appreciate this, though, and to appreciate our understanding of Father, we also have to appreciate the difference between the Jewish people and their surrounding cultures. Keep in mind, Genesis was not meant to be a science book. The earliest writings of Genesis occurred about 1,200 years before our Lord. And before that, these stories were handed on. So from the time of Abraham, about 1,800 years before our Lord, all the way to those first writings, as best we know, 1,200 years before our Lord, these stories were handed on. They weren't science books. Moses, who is traditionally the author of the first five books of the Bible, the Pentateuch, the Torah, and whoever the scribes were that helped him, were not astrophysicists. They weren't archaeologists. They were believers, and that's what they want to convey. So first of all, if we look at the predominant surrounding cultures at that time, we could take the Babylonians. So, the good old Babylonians. 
we've all heard of Nebuchadnezzar and Hammurabi and so on. Well, they had a creation account. And the creation account involved a female goddess named Tiamat who had a husband, male god, who was named Apsu. But Tiamat had a boyfriend, Kingu. I'm not making any of this up. That's one thing, (laughs) Kingu. So, I mean, these are the official Babylonian names. Now, Tiamat and Apsu have a baby named Ea. Ea eventually has a son named Marduk. Now, Marduk was a very proud individual, and he wanted to be the supreme god. So he knocks off his father, murders him, Ea. And then Marduk also knocks off Apsu. Eventually, he knocks off good old grandma, Tiamat, kills her, and with her dead carcass, creates the world. But then he also kills Kingu, the boyfriend, and with his blood fashions mankind. That's the Babylonian creation account. And what do we find here? One, we find a pantheon of gods, so we don't find an eternal god. These all came into existence at some point. We don't find one all-powerful, perfect God. We also find violence involved here. We find a little bit of funny sexual relationships going on here. We find really jealousy, envy, rivalry in this creation account. Keep that in mind when we turn to Genesis. Go to the Egyptians. Now, the Egyptians actually have several creation accounts But the dominant one involves, first of all, the god Nun, N-U-N, who is the god of chaos, the waters of chaos. And out of the waters of chaos was born the god Ra, Atum Ra. Sometimes it's either R-A, sometimes it's R-E, usually R-A. And Ra is the sun god. The sun. From Ra, because he really has an act of self-fertilization, and if you, I'm not going to go into the specifics of that, but that's the way it's described, self-fertilization, he gives rise to the god Shu, who is the god of the atmosphere. And the god Shu then also gives rise to the god Nut and the god Geb. Now, with that in mind, just last week, actually, I was in London, and a priest friend of mine, we were over there for a little vacation, and also visiting some friends that we know from a previous parish. But I went to the British Museum, and they had a special exhibit on Egyptian papyri, particularly the death scrolls, how they buried the dead and the secrets and the incantations and so on. And one of the scrolls actually described this, which was interesting. And it depicted this god Shu. So my artistry is not the best, but if you think of here is the god Shu. The god Shu is sort of holding up here the god Nut, this god of the sky, and then holding down here the god Geb, 
who is the god of the earth. So it's sort of like this kind of a thing. And Ra is above that. Now, the next thing is that Ra cries, and out of his tears come man. That's the Egyptian creation account. But here again, we have a pantheon of gods. None of them are eternal. They come into existence. They aren't all powerful. And if we went further in this, there is rivalry going on here. Now, there could be, there's two other creation accounts for the Egyptians. We don't need to get into those. But when we look at this, these are the two dominant cultures surrounding the Jews at the time. So given what we've just learned here, albeit very briefly, we could look at Genesis. So I don't know if you have your Bibles, but if you do, we could go to chapter 1 of Genesis, verse 1. And it says, in the beginning, when God created the heavens and the earth, the earth was a formless wasteland and darkness covered the abyss while a mighty wind swept over the waters. Now, scripture scholars of the Old Testament would say that that phrasing tries to capture nothingness. So this idea of the earth, a formless wasteland, darkness covering the abyss, this mighty wind over the waters, that's the way they tried to capture nothingness. After all, how do we describe nothingness or define it? So this is their way of describing nothingness but it's at the beginning. And then it says, verse 3, Then God said, Let there be light. So we see this light. Now, pause here, because we have God, we could say the Father, who's speaking. And through his efficacious word, capital W, word, the Son, he's creating. This is why in the creed we say, Jesus Christ, through whom all things were made. He's the word through which the Father made. In the preceding verse also, that mighty wind. In the Greek text, that's pneuma, it's spirit. So we have even the spirit of God hovering over these waters who is going to bring about life. So here is an implicit reference, at least, to the Trinity. Father the Word, the Spirit, all God. Also it says in verse 3, then God said, it doesn't say God appeared, does it? God is, so God is eternal. None of this, multiple gods, it's God. Always is, always was, always will be. And God said, let there be light. And it goes on, and there was light. God saw how good the light was. Notice that. God sees the goodness of this. God creates on his own. He creates in freedom. He creates with love, with design. No rivalry, no violence, no sex involved here. Right? God creates with freedom, purpose, love, intelligence, one could say. God saw how good the light was. Then God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. Thus evening came, and morning followed the first day. And I'm not going to read all through everything just to save some time, but then it speaks about how God separated the waters. There's land. He made this dome, the waters, the light, so on. God creates the sky. There's the sun, the moon, and so forth. 
God says in verse 11, let the earth bring forth vegetation and the seed-bearing fruits and so on. At the end of the third day, at the end of each day, but again at the end of the third, it says God saw everything he had made and how good it was. Then it goes on. And throughout all these different days, so up to day six. But remember, at the end of each day, we have God looking out and saying how good it was. Now, if you read through Genesis and you think about God creating light, separating light from darkness, and you have the earth, and you have the water versus the land, vegetation, and then the birds, the animals, and so on, it makes sense. There's order. There's purpose. Again, not a science book, but there is order and there's purpose. Then, finally, on the sixth day, God makes the animals, but then, in verse 27, we read, God created man in his image, in the divine image he created him, male and female he created them. Beautiful verse. Out of all of creation, all of creation, only man and woman are made in the image and likeness of God. How beautiful that is. So there's a difference between us and the rest of creation. For us, we would say from this that we are not just a body, but also we have a soul, that immortal soul. But also that God created man in his image, but male and female. So there is a goodness to being a man and a woman. There's a difference, though, isn't there? That we are physically different, we're physiologically different, and for those of you who are married, you know you're psychologically different, too. Right? You've figured that out. So how, if each one is made in God's image and likeness, how do you get the best picture in marriage? And that's why it says in the next verse, God blessed them, saying, be fertile and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. That's marriage. So God had this plan that this man and woman, who were made in his image and likeness, would come together, really in union with him, that the two would become one flesh, that this unity would be there, and in union with him, they would be able to bring forth life, new life, a new unique human being. It's very miraculous. So it's a beautiful creation story. Now, a few other points. Already mentioned that we have an eternal God, one God, not a pantheon of gods. God who creates with purpose, design, intelligence, with freedom, not violent sex or anything else involved like these other cultures. We have a God who creates out of nothing. He doesn't take a carcass or blood or something else. He creates out of nothing. Technically, we use the Latin phrase for that, ex nihilo, that God creates out of nothing. So he's even creating that stuff from which creation is made. God also creates over these seven days. Now, it would be wrong to think that this is seven 24-hour periods of time because, as we read in the Psalms, a day in the mind of God it's like a thousand years for us. Maybe it's millions of years. doesn't matter. But seven was a perfect number for the Jews. That's the key. 
For them, seven's a perfect number. They even used the word seven like a verb in making the covenant. The Jews would say, I seven this with you, which means I'm making a covenant, this agreement, this bonding of life and love with one another. So that verb seven is evoking the covenant and a relationship between man and God. So seven was a perfect number. So we shouldn't limit ourselves and say, it has to be seven 24-hour periods of time. Then how do you deal with science? So it could be millions. It doesn't matter. The purpose is that God created. Moreover, what he created was good. He looks at it all, and he sees how good it was. Then, it's all leading to a climax, isn't it? It's leading to the creation of us. So no matter, again, what scientific evidence we have, all of creation eventually is moving to a climax, and there's the human being, man and woman. Only we are made in God's image and likeness. We have not just a body, we have a soul, an immortal soul. We have to remember from this account, too, that this loving Father purposely created us, each one of us. Each one of us has a God-given dignity, no matter who we are. So whether we're the most physically fit person or in some way disabled, or if we're the most intellectual person or some way disabled, each one of us here has a purpose given to us by God. We are purposefully made. We're different from the animals or in the plants. So no matter how much you love Fluffy the cat or Rex the wonder dog, that's fine. But they aren't human beings. I saw a commercial recently with some animal rights group, and it has all these pictures of like cats and dogs, and like talking about the sad eyes and the broken heart of Bow Wow, and so on and so forth. And granted, I don't believe in animal abuse at all. But I'm like, well, I hope these people are pro-life too. You know, that they're as concerned about the unborn children in our world as they are about the poor doggy who might have a bad home. You know, we've got the wrong idea in some cases here. But be that as it may, when we look at Genesis, we have a beautiful creation account. And again, we see a God, too, who not only creates, he's guiding creation. So we wouldn't get into that deistic idea of like God just started it. He said, boom, let there be light, and then he's removed, and it's just all on its own. No, God is guiding and sustaining creation. Very important. So it's not as though we just have this mechanistic God who just starts it, and that's it. No, God is creating. And this creation really continues on. So, so far, so good, right? Hopefully. Right? Good. All right. Now, with that in mind then, what about evil then? That's always a question that comes up. That if we have this loving God, why evil? Well, we don't have time to go through the whole theology of original sin and so on. But we do know there was some primordial event that we know as the fall with Adam and Eve, who rebelled against God. Sin enters this world. Even before that, Scripture refers to that event where Satan, Lucifer, and the bad angels rebelled against God. 
Now, with that in mind, a couple of points. St. Augustine, when he was doing his thought about let there be light, said that's when the angels were created because they're pure spirits and they reflect the glory of God. Angels are spirits. Angels have an intellect and a free will, though. Well, according to Scripture, there is that event where Lucifer and the fallen angels rebel against God. They're cast into hell. Lucifer then becomes the Satan, the devil that we know, and we have the other fallen angels as demons. Then we do have Adam and Eve, who are also created with intellect and free will. That's part of being in the image and likeness of God. Here again we see the goodness of God's creation. God loved us so much he didn't force us to love him. God gave us the choice. After all, if we had to love God, we were forced into it, that's not really love. Love is self-giving. Love is a self-sacrifice. So God loved us so much, he allows us to choose. And we know from Scripture, Adam and Eve were in paradise, and they just could not eat of the fruit of the tree of good and evil, this tree of knowledge. And knowledge, there is always this experiential kind of knowledge. So God wanted them to be innocent, like little children, not to experience evil, but they wanted to be God, and they wanted to do their will. They wanted to have their own kingdom. The devil said, you can be God. And they thought, okay, sounds good. And they committed this sin. We know we have original sin, but sin enters this world. Now, people ask, well, if we have this good God, why is there evil? Well, evil, it's a deprivation of goodness. In one sense, we can look at natural evil. You think of like a natural evil, like a hurricane, like Katrina. Or we look at a volcano explosion or something of that, earthquake. This happens. It's part of creation. It's part of the growth struggles of creation coming to a perfection. So it's the world in which we live. We look at it as evil, but that's part of the science. So this is just the way things are made. Sadly, people do die in these natural evil events. But we do believe, hopefully... If we're in love with our Lord, we go on to a better life. Right? So it's not as though life is just here and now. But the key thing is what about the moral evil, those evil actions that a human being purposefully commits? Well, God doesn't make us do that. And some would say, well, why did God allow Adam and Eve to eat the fruit? If we have this loving father, why does he let them eat the forbidden fruit? Why didn't he stop them? He respects their free will. That's part of love. Now, God will always bring good out of evil. That's important. So even though there's this deprivation of good, God will bring about even a greater good. That's why at the Easter Vigil we sing, O happy fault of Adam that gave us such a Savior. See? So we have to think that God will always turn this deprivation back to good, that he will use it to bring about a greater good. But back to this evil idea. Give you an example. True story here. One day, 
a professor of a university decided to defy his pupils. He asked, Did God create everything that exists? A student answered bravely, Yes, he did. Everything asked the professor? Yes, everything was the answer of the student. In this case, God also creates evil. Correct? Because evil exists, said the professor. To that, the student had no answer and remained in silence. The teacher, the professor, was delighted at the opportunity to prove one more time that faith was only a myth. Suddenly, another student raised his hand and asked, May I ask you a question, professor? Of course, was the answer. Does cold exist? Of course, answered the professor. Did you never feel cold? Actually, sir, said the student, cold does not exist. According to studies in physics, cold is the total and complete absence of heat. An object can only be studied if it has and transmits its energy. Without heat, the objects are inert, incapable to react. But cold does not exist. We created the term cold to explain the lack of heat. And darkness, continues the student. It exists, replied the professor. Again, you're wrong, sir, said the student. Darkness is the total absence of light. You can study light and brightness, but not darkness. The prism of Nichols shows the variety of different colors in which light can be decomposed according to the longitude of the waves. Darkness is the term we created to explain the total absence of light. And finally, the student asked, And evil, sir, does evil exist? God did not create evil. Evil is the absence of God in people's hearts. It is the absence of love, humanity, and faith. Love and faith are like heat and light. They exist. Their absence leads to evil. Now it was the professor's turn to remain silent. The name of the student? Albert Einstein. Interesting, isn't it? And that brings us to the next point. In that, given what we believe about creation in Genesis, how do we reconcile it with science? Good question. The first premise to always remember is, faith and reason are not opposed. They can't be. So if both are sources of truth, but realizing that reason is bound by our own limitations as human beings, but faith takes us beyond our confines to approach and fall in love with God, then these sources of truth cannot be opposed, but rather they should help us, right? So the faith that is expressed in Genesis then has to be used to understand science, and science helps us understand the beauty of creation, now, there is a very popular theory called evolution. But notice, it's a theory. Charles Darwin, in 1854, in his Origin of the Species, posited a theory. It's not gospel truth, but people seem to think it is. And sadly, it takes God out of the picture. Now, again, we don't have time to go through every little detail of this theory. Books have been written on it. Kids are brainwashed with it in high school, science classes, and so on. But it removes God from the equation. 
And evolution is based on the premise of chaos and chance. Well, we don't see that in our world when we think about it. Nothing is chaotic, nothing is chance. Also, in the 14th chapter of Origin of the Species, even Darwin admits he can't explain and understand reproduction. Now think of that. We're men and women. If everything's just sort of like by chance, and we're going from like this big bang, and I have no problem with saying let there be light and then bang, explosion, but if we go from that to the world, to the slime pool of amino acids that become proteins, that become cells, and we go to a little fishy, happy thing that eventually grows legs, crawls on the ground, and we get to the lizards and the bears, the cows, eventually the monkeys, and then to us. How do we explain life? Where does life come from? You can't mix a bunch of chemicals together and get life. Also, how do you get just a man and a woman, for instance, who are made for each other. Look at our bodies. Now, evolution might make some sense if you just had an androgynous being, like we're all this androgynous thing, this unisex kind of creature. We have a man and a woman, and they're made, and their organs, and the whole notion of DNA and the chromosomes and everything makes sense and that happened by chance? Out of chaos? Doesn't make sense. Moreover, how does one explain, and Darwin can't do this, and he admitted it, consciousness, intellectual thought of a human being, language as we have it, creativity as we have it. So for all of this hammering of evolution is like some fact, something that's absolute truth and remove God, it's very blind. Very blind. Now, when we think of that too, I've been saving all kinds of articles about evolution and discoveries. Every time they find a new bone, they change the theory. What, what is it, Sabatino? Why? All right, we're evolving. All right, so well, time for a commercial interruption, right? So anyway, so where, was, where were we here? The evolution, bones. Oh, and there was, back in the mid-1900s, a fossil discovered called Piltdown Man. Well, does anybody remember that? What do you remember? Hmm? What do you remember? Oh, well, some guy took a jawbone from an ape and a human skull, put it together, and the scientist said, look what we found. And 50 years later, they said it's a fraud. Or, if you remember from the 1960s, Time Life books had this nice little chart of you had little, like, chimpanzee monkey, and it went through, like, Java man, Peking man, Neanderthal man, and so on, and then eventually you got human man. Throw it out. They've changed it all. Again, when I was in England, I found at the British Museum of Natural History, they had this thing, chart of human ancestors. And actually, it goes through like Homo habilis and Homo robustus, Homo erectus, Homo heidelbergensis, Homo neanderthalensis. 
eventually Homo sapiens. That's supposed to be us. But what I liked about the chart was you have a break. They have finally realized we don't come from all these other little things. Little Homo sapiens is on his own here. So maybe God had all this creation. But eventually it gets to us, made in God's image and likeness. And even they did a DNA study not too long ago, and it was called, I've cut this out of a journal, it's called New Evidence of Eve. They did this massive DNA study, ran it through the computers, DNA from all kinds of people throughout the world, and they found out we have one common ancestor, and they named that ancestor Eve. We don't come from monkeys. Some people, I think, do, but we don't really come from monkeys, or at least some people act like they come from monkeys. So, We'll take a break there for five minutes, and then we'll do some more science. All right, so given what we've just covered, and emphasizing again, evolution is a theory. Now, I'm not going to just say throw out every scientific piece of evidence and so on, but again, what we want to do is keep faith and science together because that science helps us appreciate the beauty of God. Really. So, with that, I'm just going to give you a few little quotes from great scientists and so on. One thing, before I forget, if you want a good book, it's in reprint now, but it was by Cardinal Ratzinger back then, about 1990. But he wrote a series of reflections on Genesis. It's called In the Beginning. Ignatius Press has reprinted it. It's beautiful. The Holy Father not only does the scriptural reflection, he also includes scientific evidence at that time. But then, just let's think. I mentioned Einstein already. And Einstein said this. My religion consists... Now, Einstein was a, a Jew by culture, by birth, but he didn't really practice Judaism. He, but he still was a believer. He says, my religion consists of a humble admiration of the illimitable superior spirit who reveals himself in the slight details we're able to perceive with our frail and feeble minds. That deeply emotional conviction of a presence of a superior reasoning power, which is revealed in the incomprehensible universe, forms my idea of God. And then, continuing on, he says, I want to know how God created this world, I am not interested in this or that phenomenon, in the spectrum of this or that element. I want to know his thoughts. The rest are details. Einstein. So Einstein was a believer. That's very important to remember. Actually, is quite fascinated with the idea of transubstantiation. Now, with that too, we also have another great scientist named Warner Von Braun. You may remember he was the scientists who developed the Saturn rocket, and prior, sad to say, in World War II, developed the V-2 rockets and so on. But Warner Von Braun said, I find it as difficult to understand a scientist who does not acknowledge the presence of a superior rationality behind the existence of the universe as it is to comprehend a theologian who would deny the advances of science. And there is certainly no scientific reason why God cannot retain the same relevance in our modern world that he held before 
we began probing his creation with telescope, cyclotron, and space vehicles. Another quote from Dr. Von Braun is, Can a physicist visualize an electron? The electron is materially inconceivable, and yet it is so perfectly known through its effects that we use it to illuminate our cities, guide our airlines through the night skies, and take the most accurate measurements. What strange rationale makes some physicists accept the inconceivable electron as real while refusing to accept the reality of God on the ground that they cannot conceive him? When man almost 2,000 years ago was given the opportunity to know Jesus Christ, to know God who had decided to live for a while as man amongst fellow men, in this little planet, our world was turned upside down through the widespread witness of those who heard and understood him. That same miracle can happen again if only all men will accept Christ. Although I know of no reverence to Christ ever commenting on scientific work, I do know that he said, you shall, now the tr you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. Thus I am certain that were he visible among us today, Christ would encourage scientific research in modern man's most noble striving to comprehend and admire his father's handiwork. In this reaching of the new millennium through faith in the words of Jesus Christ, science can be a valuable tool rather than an impediment. My relationship with God is very personal. I think you can be on a first-name term with him, you know, and tell him what your troubles are and ask for help. I do it all the time, and it works for me. It's a scientist. Now, another one. If you want some more, Thomas Dubay, Father Thomas Dubay, recently died, just about a month ago now, wrote a beautiful book called The Evidential Power of Beauty. And the first half of the book is just quotes, really evidence from scientists. And then the last part is more of a theological explanation. But just to give you a few goodies here, a biochemist named Lewis Thomas said, I cannot make my peace with the randomness doctrine. I cannot abide the notion of purposelessness and blind chance in nature. It is absurd to say that a place like this place is absurd when it contains in front of our eyes so many millions of different forms of life, each one in its way absolutely perfect. Now, another physicist, Henry Pierce Stapp from Berkeley, he said, everything we know about nature is in accord with the idea that the fundamental processes of nature lie outside space time, but generate events that can be located in space-time. Interesting concept. Now, Warner Heisenberg, another physicist, said, if from the indubitable fact that the world exists, someone wants to infer a cause of this existence, his inference does not contradict our scientific knowledge at any point. No scientist has at his disposal even a single argument or any kind of fact which he could oppose such an assumption, meaning God. This is true, even if the cause, and how could it be otherwise, obviously has to be sought outside this three-dimensional world of ours. Now, if we go on, there is Michael Denton, who's a microbiologist. 
he says, however attractive the extrapolation, it does not necessarily follow that because a certain degree of evolution has been shown to occur, therefore any degree of evolution is possible. There's obviously an enormous difference between the evolution of a color change in a moth's wing and the evolution of an organ like the human brain. And the fruit flies of Hawaii, for example, are utterly trivial compared with the differences between a mouse and an elephant or an octopus and a bee. Hmm. Now, he says, continuing on, evolution by natural selection is in essence merely a special case of problem solving by trial and error. This implies that every evolutionary route followed during the course of evolution to every adaptive end must have been initially discovered and traced out as a result of a process which in the end is nothing more or less than a gigantic random search. So, one last one here, which is a really good one. Physicist Stanley Jackie, J-A-K-I, says, In those cases, we see the same story, the matter of one cosmic specificity leading to another and in staggeringly exact and specific quantitative terms. In the matter-antimatter states, for instance, ordinary matter particles must outnumber antimatter particles in the specifically exact ratio of one part in 10 billion to let subsequent physical interactions issue in processes characteristic of our actually observed universe. Mm. So, okay, now, but he goes on. Now, this is what it means, that amazing as this is, he says, at any stage, the slightest departure from the specificity as postulated would prevent the formation of galaxies and certainly the emergence of man. What he's saying is, if you look at the scientific evidence, there's a plan. It's not chaos. Change one little thing, and it's not going to be the way we know it. So he says, one of its traits is the composition of the air we breathe. If its makeup included 17% oxygen, we could not breathe at all. If it were 25%, we would burn up. It is actually 21%, exactly what we need. If the mass of our largest planet, Jupiter, were 1% greater or less than it actually is, our solar system would be destabilized. And again, we could not exist. To give us our four seasons and a humanly ideal temperature range, our Earth is tilted at precisely the correct 23.5 degrees. When you look at these scientists, they're being honest. Now, does that make them necessarily Christians? No, but it does mean they accept there's a God, that there's a God, that this is something more than haphazard chance and chaos. We look at it and we see there's God. Now, if we go to just philosophers, and that can always be a little bit dangerous, but even Charles Sanders Peirce, who taught at Harvard about the year 1900, American philosopher, he said, if you just go out and you muse, he talked about the musement, and you muse upon creation, he says, you're led to be enwrapped. This is a quote, enwrapped in love, capital L, love, 
and say there is a God. He doesn't have to have necessarily Christian God, Jewish God, but the fact is there is a God, this all-powerful, loving God who created in wisdom and in freedom with purpose. One last one, Anthony Flew. Now, there's a new book written by him. Anthony Flew is in his 80s. And he wrote a book that I read in college, and it dealt with the atheist's proof for no God. Okay? Now he wrote a book, There Is, Slash Out the No, A God. Changed his mind in his 80s. Caused a big stir in the academic community. Now, he didn't convert. Okay? He didn't convert. But he renounced his atheism in December 2004 at the age of 81. And he said, It has become inordinately difficult even to begin to think about constructing a naturalistic theory of the evolution of that first reproducing organism. Biologists' investigation of DNA has shown, by the almost unbelievable complexity of the arrangements which are needed to produce life, that intelligence must have been involved. I have been persuaded that it is simply out of the question that the first living matter evolved out of dead matter and then developed into an extraordinary complicated creature. It seems to me that the case for the Aristotelian god, who has the characteristics of power and also intelligence, is now much stronger than it ever was before. Now, concerning this Professor Dawkins, have you heard of him? Yes. So, Dawkins. And there's a great book. It's called God is No Delusion by Father Thomas Crean, and it refutes Dawkins. But even Anthony Flew, the former atheist, says, It seems to me that Richard Dawkins constantly overlooks the fact that Darwin himself, in the 14th chapter of The Origin of the Species, pointed out that his whole argument began with a being which already possessed reproductive powers. This is the creature of evolution of which a truly comprehensive theory of evolution must give some account. Darwin himself was well aware that he had not produced such an account. It now seems to me that the finding of more than 50 years of DNA research have produced materials for a new and enormously powerful argument of design. Hmm. Now, given that, what we have in Genesis is a beautiful story that tries to convey truths. And we have science. So in our human abilities, we can ponder how God created this world. If we are honest, though, just like Sander, Charles Sanders Pierce said, that we can look at that and see the beauty of God. Faith and reason, the scientific evidence, do not contradict. It would be absurd It'd be absurd to deny science, but it'd be absurd to deny God, too. So we have to put the two together. Remember the truths of Genesis always is the basis for appreciating the science. One thing that's always very important, though, especially for us as Catholics, when we look at Genesis, we have to always remember that beautiful verse, God made man in his image and likeness. In the divine image he created him, male and female he created them. Because we aren't just 
functionary things. We aren't just complex organisms. We're human beings made in God's image and likeness. And from that very first moment of creation, when we have our DNA molecule, that unique gift, at some point, right about then, God infuses the immortal soul. God creates us. God gives us purpose. God gives us value. And that value does not end until we leave this world through God-willing natural death. And that's a very important moral premise to apply to everything we know in science, medicine, whatever it may be. Now, for us, we go further to appreciate this idea of God the Father. We have to think there was also that sin. I mentioned how at Easter we say, oh, happy fall of Adam that gave us a redeemer. We look at St. John's Gospel to the words of our Lord in chapter 3, verse 16. It says, God so loved, Jesus said, God so loved the world that he gave his only son, not to condemn the world, but to give everlasting life to those who believe. How blessed we are that this loving Father gave us a Redeemer. Jesus, true God, became one like us in all things but sin. He shows us how to be really a human being, living in that image and likeness of God. He gives our dignity even greater value than Adam and Eve had. He humbled himself to share in our humanity. So like St. Paul said, we could share in his divinity through grace. How blessed we are. And that's the loving Father. Now when we think about that then, going back to our good old Bible in the Gospels, we have Jesus at the Last Supper praying for his apostles to the Father, and he says, Father, the hour has come. This is chapter 17. Give glory to your Son, that your Son may give glory to you, inasmuch as you have given him authority over all mankind, that he may bestow eternal life on those you gave him. Eternal life is this, to know you, the only true God, and him whom you have sent, Jesus Christ. Now, Jesus continues on, skip a few verses here, and he says, For these I pray, not for the world, but for those you have given me, that they are really yours. Just as all that belongs to me is yours, so all that belongs to you is mine. It is in them that I have been glorified. So, we have to think, Jesus prays to his Father for us. And we remember that because of Jesus, through his passion, death, and resurrection, and then sharing in that through our baptism, we've become the adopted children. We've become like him, the sons, we could say the daughters, but the same idea of relationship that Jesus has. So the Heavenly Father so loved us, he gave us the Savior, and it is through the lens of the Savior that the Father looks upon us. We're more than just a creature then. We have the same dignity, the same value that Jesus has in relationship to the Father. So St. Paul writes in Romans chapter 8, verse 14 and following, All who were led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. You did not receive a spirit of slavery leading you back into fear, but a spirit of adoption through which we cry out, Abba, that is Father. For us, Daddy. 
the Spirit himself gives witness with our spirit that we are children of God. But if we are children, we are heirs as well. Heirs of God, heirs with Christ. If only we suffer with him so as to be glorified with him. Now, let's take it one last step further. So we have this father who created, and despite sin, sent us our Savior. And through Jesus, we have this adoption that we're able to share in the divine nature through grace, the grace of sacraments. We've been recreated in baptism, reborn in baptism. But we can also pray to a father. So when the apostles in the Gospel of Matthew chapter 6, said, Lord, teach us to pray. What prayer did Jesus give? The Our Father. The Lord's Prayer. Imagine that. Our Lord only gave one whole prayer in the whole Gospel. He only gave one prayer, and it was the Our Father. And in Matthew we read, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread, And forgive us the wrong we have done as we forgive those who wrong us. Subject us not to the trial, but deliver us from the evil one. Now, when we think of that beautiful prayer, the Our Father, it's not a coincidence that traditionally it's been broken into seven statements. Think of Genesis, perfect creation, perfect prayer. So we begin with that Our Father who is in heaven. So we recognize him, as I've already mentioned, as that loving father who is the creator, who is the life giver, the protector, the guardian, who loves us so much. The father who loved us, who gave us his son. And with the son poured forth the Holy Spirit. So first of all, when we say our father in heaven, that's what we mean. First statement. The second is, hallowed be thy name. Well, God's name is holy. It's all-powerful. When we hear that name of God or the name of Father, Jesus, any of those divine names, immediately an image comes up. Names are important. They identify, right? Names give us relationships to each other. Names enable us to communicate. So God's name is all-holy. When we invoke that name, we're drawn into the presence of God not only in that sense of the intellect, but in very much that spiritual sense. Also, God's name is very powerful. The saints always said, the devil is frightened of the name of the Lord, especially Jesus. Teresa of Avila said that, that, because she had, at times, encounters with the devil. She'd just say the name Jesus, the devil was gone. Also, we have to think, if God's name is holy, how sad it is if we would ever take that name in vain. And don't we do that? Doesn't that really show like that contempt? It's almost like the Adam and Eve. I'll be God. I'll be equal. And we use God's name in vain, whether it's the GD or using Jesus as an expletive. Really, we should, if ever we have that habit ourselves, break it. But even if we hear people, we should bow our head, do something, but I was even in a, I was in a store once, and they had the radio going. It was a sports kind of program on. And actually, I heard the sports announcer say, Jesus Christ, something about a football game. And that's on the air. 
obviously no respect. And I thought, what contempt. Maybe the person doesn't even realize it. But still, how awful it is. And the devil must laugh to use any of the holy names in such a way. Because it really shows we're the rebellious creature. To think we would invoke God in an act of anger. Or just use him as an expletive in some way. So hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. So we are looking towards heaven. We are. But the kingdom is now. Jesus said that. The kingdom is now. It's within us. Not a physical kingdom, but within us. And we're called to live as that child of God in union with our Lord. Thy will be done. God's will. So God's will is that he has a plan. And St. Thomas More, when he was in the Tower of London, said, whatever God's will will work out for what is good. St. Thomas More's words. He said, even if we don't understand that will, it will work out for good. So things do happen. And as the little creatures, the children of God, we shouldn't simply say, why me? Sometimes we don't know why me. Why not me, in a sense? Would we rather have someone else be diagnosed with the cancer instead of us? Why me? Or have anger. But instead we have to think somehow, if we have a loving father, this will work out for good. Also, though, it means that as, as children of the father, we have to enact that will. See, so do thy will be done isn't simply that we're like passive in this, but that we are active. We're doing God's will. That's why we have to speak the truth. That's why we have to present our faith. That's why we have to bring people to Christ. That's God's will. We have to work to make a visible kingdom of truth, justice, so we can have peace. That's part of thy will be done. Give us this day our daily bread. So we ask for whatever need we have. Not simply actual bread, but anything that we need to sustain us. And we trust that God will hear those prayers and God will answer them. We have to remember, though, as trusting children of a loving father, he knows what's best, right? Sometimes we asked our parents for things and they said, no. And they had a good reason why they said no, right? Or they said, you'll do this, and we didn't want to do it, but we did it, and it was for the best. Same thing here, that in our prayers we have to say, well, Lord, I trust in your will. So God always answers our prayers. We might not get the answer we want, but we'll get the best answer, and we'll get the answer when we're ready for it. That's the key, when we're ready for the answer. Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. That's a tough one, but we beg for forgiveness. And that's our faith, that Jesus did come to forgive our sins. He was sent by the Father for that. So while we express contrition for our sins, we have to forgive others. How can we have a heart filled with hatred or hurts or anything like that? And this, is true. this too is why Jesus, at the night of the resurrection, appeared to the apostles and instituted the sacrament of penance. He said, receive the Holy Spirit. What sins you forgive, they are forgiven. We seek forgiveness but we also ask for the grace to be able to forgive others. Who are we to act as God and say, 
I won't forgive. Right? God forgives. Our loving Father forgives us. The parable of the prodigal son reminds us of this love that's beyond our human comprehension of forgiveness. Who are we not to forgive? And then lastly, we say, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Now, English is a little bit complicated because it seems like, you know, lead us not in temptation, like God's going to put us into temptation. It's more like, don't allow us to be led into temptation. We face temptation. You and I know that. Temptation, whether it's from external things or things within ourselves. We are the poor victims of original sin. But we pray for the grace to withstand that temptation. Scripture says that we will never be tempted beyond our ability. That's important to remember. Temptation also makes us grow stronger. When we say no, when we overcome that temptation, we're growing stronger spiritually. It's the challenge, in a sense. Even if we fall, though, we can rely on the forgiveness of God. But we do pray to be delivered from evil. And we pray for the strength to withstand any kind of temptation. Now, I would encourage you, that was a really brief sketch through the Our Father, but the last section of the Catechism, the section on spirituality, explicates the Our Father, and it's beautiful. It's really a beautiful explication. Also, our Holy Father in his book, Jesus of Nazareth, also explicates the Our Father. But it's a beautiful prayer, and I'll just close with this little story. This year, we're remembering, actually, the 75th anniversary of the close of World War II. And on April 26, 1945, the Allies were approaching Dachau concentration camp, and that was the first established in 1933 by Adolf Hitler. It wasn't one of the large extermination camps like Auschwitz but rather is for the political dissidents, the communists, Catholic priests. 2,700 Catholic priests throughout Europe would be held at Dachau. Most two-thirds would die at Dachau. And they were given special treatment to show how awful they were in the eyes of the Reich. But when the, on these last days of the war, all of a sudden the prisoners were there, and it's like, where are all the SS guards? They'd evacuated. They had retreated. There are a few there in the powers to watch over them. But all of a sudden, the prisoners are going into the courtyard where they normally had to line up information. Eventually, the Allied commander came in, the, uh, an American colonel, and he says, you all are now free. And they're all happy. And he said, let's pause and pray. Now, what prayer would you say to all these different people of different faith backgrounds of different nationalities. They all prayed the Our Father. True story. All prayed the Our Father. So, ladies and gentlemen, brothers and sisters, we could, we've covered a lot. There's a whole lot we could say, but it's worth pondering. It's worth pondering the beauty of our God, the Heavenly Father, who loves us so much. From the very first moment of creation, through the gift of our Savior at this very moment. As we prepare to celebrate the Feast of Christ the King this weekend, let us remember we're called to really continue 
that idea of creation to renew all things in Christ. Amen. That's it. Thank Our you. sponsor. <laughs> Thank you very much, Father Saunders, for a very enlightening talk. You know, Father Saunders normally teaches a whole semester course on God the Father. And a lady the other day said to me, what's this talk on God the Father? I mean, what are you going to talk about? What's there to talk about? <laughs> and I laughed because uh, this is traditionally a semester course that you take in theology. Well, you got a little taste of it today, so I hope you appreciated that. All right, so we're going to take a quick break. Go if you've got to go out the door. If you want to stay for five minutes of question and answer, that's what we'll do. Father, um, thinking about Adam and Eve in the fall, uh, for us to commit a sin, we're taught that we have to have consciousness and willful consent and mm -hmm. malice aforethought. You could really make an argument that Adam and Eve had none of those things. I mean, it's Oh, no, they did, because they had the preternatural gifts. They had better knowledge than we have. Because they were in paradise. I always think of them as being, you know, just like no. totally confused. No that's, no, that's why, no, because see, the devil, the serpent, that wily little serpent, uh, puts doubts, lies, the senses get going, and Eve says, okay, eat the apple. Well, eat the fruit. And so, but Adam and Eve actually had that freedom of suffering, and they had the intellect better than us. See, we're the victims of original sin. We have the concupiscence, the darkening of the intellect. Absolutely. Yeah, they knew what they were doing. Yep. God said you can do anything except eat that fruit. So. Well, in relation to that question, um, my question, sorry, my question is, um, one of the things that always perturbed me is, um, or just, you know, kind of got me all messed up was that, um, Somebody asked me once, they said, okay, with Adam and Eve in the, in the garden and everything, um, like, God knew they were going to sin. And, I mean, I understand what you're saying that, you know, hey, they're not like us. They didn't have the propensity to sin. But I think what bothers me is their the person's question, because I never knew how to answer it, and that is, if God knew they were going to sin, then it's really, it was really kind of evil of God to, like, he knew they were going to sin. And so, you know, a lot of times our theology, of course, says, and then Jesus came, and it was a wonderful thing. But, you know, he knew they were going to sin, and he knew we were going to have all this terrible stuff because of it. And I don't know how to answer that. Well, the problem is always that trying to comprehend God's foreknowledge and God who is beyond time, see, versus us with our limited knowledge, and we are stuck in time. We're past, present, future human beings. But God is infinite. God's beyond time. Now, because God has foreknowledge doesn't mean that he determines. He didn't say, you have to do this. It's sort of like as a teacher, I have foreknowledge at times and say, I know that kid's going to fail the class. Do I make him? No. I can help him, but I sort of know ahead in my own little human feeble way, that kid's going to fail. Or this kid's going to be a success either way. So does that determine? No. That's a foreknowledge. So it's always going to be an element of mystery. See, and this is what we have to accept because God is God. Here we are. You know, God's omnipotent, omniscient, all-powerful, eternal, and so on, and we're just little old human beings. See, if you, St. Paul says, you know, if you have faith, it works out for good. And that's important. Even like when you think of the horrors of, I mentioned Dachau and so on, 
Hopefully we learn something from that. Hopefully. Sometimes you wonder in parts of the world, but you know, really when you think about it, we haven't had that experience again. How could a perfect God create imperfect beings? Well, explain that a little more. If we have um, the capability to be imperfect, and God, who is perfect, created us, then how come we do not always make the perfect decision if God is perfect? Because we're the victims of original sin. You know, because we have a free will, but we have a weakened will. We have a darkened intellect. Like, when you think about it, I think all of us have had that experience where we knew what was the right act to do, but we chose otherwise. Why? I mean, what, we know it's right to do. It's right to do, like I, the eighth graders that I teach, it's like, you know it's right to do your homework. Why do you watch video games anyway? That's weakness. Or even you think about Dachau. We saw the horrors of Dachau, and yet we've also seen since then Rwanda, the genocide there, or Bosnia, Croatia. It's the mystery of original sin. We're never fully going to understand it, but within us there is that human weakness. So God made us in that image and likeness, but there is that primordial event where we fell, fell from grace. But at the other hand, though, see, this is what's so beautiful about our faith. We have Jesus, true God, who became also true man. So he shows us the way, and Jesus gives us the grace to overcome. It's always going to be a struggle for all of us. The saints struggled to be holy, but we have saints. We have someone like a Maximilian Kolbe at Auschwitz who gives up his life to save somebody else. And really, even the prison guards who saw him after that starvation bunker sentence said that they ha he had a radiance about him. That's holiness. So there's that reflection of the image and likeness of God. We can, with God's help, overcome this. That's it is a struggle, and we have to admit that. It's a human condition almost. We're never going to be able to fully you know, explicate the whys. We just can't. It's, we have our limits. But it makes sense, though. I mean, when you ponder it, it makes sense. Thank you, Father Saunders. Okay, good. So, good. Thank you. We hope you enjoyed this presentation from the Institute of Catholic Culture. If you'd like to learn more about the mission of the Institute and how you may become a part of this important work, please visit our website at www.instituteofcatholicculture.org or call us at 540-635-7155. And may the glory of Christ Church be ever more manifest upon the earth. St. John the Evangelist. Pray for us.